Hey, I'm Spencer Powell and welcome to Remodeler Stories, where we highlight remodelers. Every remodeler has a unique story and journey and we can all learn from each other. Stay tuned for a mix of inspiration, tactical tips, unique strategies, and some laughter. The remodeling business is tough, but rewarding, and we're all in this together. Let's kick this thing off. Before we get into today's show, let's talk about our show sponsor, Remodeler Growth Community. Remodeler Growth Community is a peer-to-peer networking group exclusively for remodelers. For a low monthly fee, you get access to some of the best minds in the industry, life-changing business strategies, and the ability to connect and learn from people who've walked the path you walk. Go to remodelercommunity.com to enroll today. 100% satisfaction guaranteed or your money back, so there's absolutely no risk to you. Go to remodelercommunity.com to enroll today. Today, I sit down with Nick Adams of Heirloom Property Management and Construction. Nick grew up in the Twin Cities and fell in love with Duluth and the North Shore while earning his BA in Business Administration from the University of Minnesota, Duluth. His entry into rental property ownership was spurred through the help of Michael, his business partner, and has allowed him to continue to invest in properties over the years. In 2013, Nick was nominated for the Labovitz Entrepreneurial Success Award alongside Michael and one other partner. Nick brings many years of business and project management experience to Heirloom, and when not at work, Nick enjoys spending time outdoors with his family, mountain biking, and exploring Duluth's abundance parks. Now for my conversation with Nick Adams. Hey, Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to get into things, but give people the lay of the land. Who are you? What's the company and where are you guys located? Yeah, so my name is Nick Adams. We are Heirloom Construction is the name of our entity, and we're located in Duluth, Minnesota. So imagine just really far north in Minnesota, (laughs) right on the shores of Lake Superior. We're about two hours north of Minneapolis is where we call home. Sweet deal. Yeah. And when did the company start? Officially, it was 2014. Unofficially, we got into business as college kids, pretty green to the world, buying up distressed properties and Mm -hmm. fixing them up. And then we rented them out to friends. So while we were in college, it kind of started by buying property. And all the properties we were buying, they obviously needed a lot of work and renovation. And so I think both Mike and I, we knew enough to be dangerous. I don't think we knew enough to be contractors at the time. And so kind of our, our, and what happened was, is so we continued to sort of get properties, we would renovate them and fix them up and then start to rent them out. And we did that for a couple of years. And, And eventually what happened is, is we got enough properties ourselves that we started doing our own maintenance. And we kind of started falling into property management. And then we, we kind of officially became, we got our general contractor's license, went through all of that and sort of became official in 2014. And so at least in our state, there's also some requirements around brokerage and being a licensed realtor and all that. So, but we had kind of been doing construction for, it was about 10 years before we kind of became official and then went the route of, of being a contractor for hire. It took a few iterations and it took some mistakes and before we really got there. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I'm very curious, like, why buying distressed properties when you're when you're college kids? And did, did you have cash saved up, or where did the money come from to you know acquire these? But that feels like something that not your average college kid is like. Let's go buy some rundown properties. <laughs> no, no. So Mike, my business partner, had a had a parent who owned property and owned some mini storage businesses and some rentals and a few other small businesses. So he kind of had that exposure. When I was in high school, I worked for a guy who painted houses. He did exterior house painting. And so I was his summer laborer. 
And he had a son who went to college about four hours away. And he had ended up buying three properties up there. So every summer we would go up and spend two weeks fixing up those properties after the kids moved out after the turns. And the whole time we were doing it, he was sort of explaining the economics of investment property. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like 17 at the time, thinking like, yes, I should just do that forever. And then I don't have to work as hard. <laughs> was sort of like the mindset was like the passive income. And then it was around this time. So this was like 2002, 2001, two, and then three. I remember reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which was like this fundamental, it was probably my watershed moment of realization of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, there's these two separate tracks you can get into. And I remember going to my dad and being like, hey, dad, take, I want to take all the money that you're going to give me to go to college. And I want it all right now because I'm going to go buy a rental property and I'm going to rent it out to my friends while I go to college and it'll pay for my housing. And then I'll be money ahead in the long run. And my dad said, no, right? <laughs> He's like, no, I'm like, <laughs> not what we're doing. And so what happened was, is we kind of figured out over the years, like the first property I did, we, we did what was called construction loans. And so I'm sure that probably anybody working in the new construction space or the renovation space is familiar with construction loans. However, on the rental side, they, they do them as well. And it's considered a commercial loan. So it's a little different. But what happens is, is you go in and you put your scope of work together with your retail price on it, right? It's not the price that you're going to actually pay and what your costs are. The bank orders the appraisal. They have an as-completed appraisal. And then a lot of times the banking relationships that we have and the people that we've worked with, they know that we're a general contractor. They obviously know we make a margin on the work that we do. So we sort of have a secondary bid. And that's the bid that's our cost basis. And so most of the time, the difference between what we would charge retail rate with our margin and markup you know, is enough to almost is to cover the down payment required to get into the property. So we sort of leveraged our construction experience and the profitability on our production to sort of offset our cash requirements to acquire property. And so we started doing that pretty young and have continued that role. Now, obviously, the world's a little different today than it was back then. 2007, 8, 9. I mean, even for us back then, you know, we kind of had to stop buying property. We were pretty young. We didn't have a lot of history. It was hard to get financing. So we definitely took a hiatus in there. But then around 2010, 11, and 12, that's actually when the bulk of the foreclosures hit the market back then. Mm -hmm. We were buying up property. And then at the same time, growing our construction team and getting bigger and bigger to sort of facilitate our own growth. And then in there, we had other people approaching us saying, hey, I bought this property. Can you come in and renovate it? Can you do the same thing that you're doing on your property? And it was in there that we sort of realized that, cool, there's this really great product offering that we can have in our construction space. And then it also feeds these other sister businesses and entities that we run. And so it was all, honestly, it was all kind of happenstance. It was never the intended thing to get in and to be a general contractor and to be a property manager and all these other things. The goal was always to, to acquire property. And then that's led itself to a whole bunch of other opportunities. And now today, we self-perform about 80% of what we do. So we are much heavier on the self-performance than the subcontract piece. Obviously, we subcontract out mechanicals, but MEPs. But when it comes to finished trades, framing, all of those things, we keep that in-house with our own staff. And we run six crews, production manager, project manager, an estimator, and we're adding our second estimator in January. They start with us. And so, and then we've gotten into, we've also now sort of gotten a little bit into commercial. So we've got our first 
21 unit building that we're renovating. It's a restoration project. So we're starting over, essentially gutting the building, redoing it, reconfiguring the layouts and working through that project, which is, has all of its own challenges just because the commercial code is so different than residential in some ways. It's very similar, but there's just these few little spots where you can get hung up. And then we've also gotten into development. So we've got a school that we bought that we're converting and we're the general contractor on it and we're converting it to 98 apartments. And then we're also have a new 88 unit building that we're generaling and, and getting going. Gotcha. Yeah, that's cool. Well, let's go back a little bit, I guess. So you got a lot of moving parts. So if you had to break it down in like 20 seconds, what are the, you said commercial property management, like walk, walk us through those and then we'll backtrack a little bit. Yeah. So like on the construction side, I mean, so in our construction, we do residential renovations and we do commercial renovations and now we're getting into some commercial general contracting. So those are sort of the areas that we touch on the construction side. We also have a, a sister company that does do property management. So we do both long-term leases. And then we also manage a smattering of short-term like vacation rental properties. And then we have a, a full maintenance team that just goes in after the fact and just does TNM service work on all of our existing properties and portfolios. Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's super helpful. So it sounds like if we rewind the clock, you're in college, you're starting to buy these, like figure, figure out that process. Is that continued to be a core part of like the underlying strategy is like acquire and hold properties? Or has it shifted to more like the operation of the business versus building up the portfolio? So it's both. We've grown quite a bit since since our, our beginning days. I think the last we have 83 full-time employees now across all of our different entities. So we've grown quite a bit. So my role, yes, my role has changed drastically. We still buy and hold. We've done very few flips. That's never really been the mindset for us, is you know, the value for us is not only in making the margin along the way in the construction business, it's also been around the long-term asset value of owning that property, getting the appreciation, and then capitalizing on the the income that comes in off the rents every month. And so we still continue to do that. What's happened for us, though, is the properties that we put our dollars behind in our effort have gotten bigger and bigger. So it's it's fewer single families for us, but still about 75% of our construction business is single family residential renovation. It just so happens that we've, we've kind of graduated as investors into different projects. Makes sense. Yeah, cool. Well, let's go back to maybe the first first couple of years. I and mean, I'll I'll let you define it either like the the college <laughs> years or the like 2014 we got our license. But what were like a couple early mistakes that looking back on it you're just like, "Oh man, I wish I could have erased that one." <laughs> Margin was like our biggest mistake. Like if I had to boil our ability to understand our margins not knowing that, you know, it created some real financial pinches over the years. We luckily we got a consultant a couple of years. So about 2016, we got a consultant who had commercial construction, residential construction and restoration background. And we started working with that consultant. And one of the first things he started asking us was, what's your direct margin? And I remember going like, what's direct margin? Huh? I don't even know what it was. Yeah. And then he's like, what's you your indirect margin? need to define that margin? so I can answer it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And he's like, what's your indirect margin? And I was like, what's an indirect margin? Right. And then he's like, well, what's your net margin? And I was like, you know, that's the one number I could tell you. And it was negative, right? It was not good. And so I think it was for us, the realization of measuring our performance on every job, right? So every job we're looking at our direct margin and our direct contribution. And I know everybody's got their own words for it that they use. 
But for us, it's just simply what are we left with after we pay our labor and subcontractors and materials, right? Knowing that number became extremely important because that number had to be enough to pay for the rest of the party. And for the first couple of years, it wasn't. And it was a combination of we had undervalued our service and weren't charging enough per hour. Mm -hmm. And we weren't doing a good job at creating budgets and really holding accountability to a production process around generating a consistent level of margin on the projects that we were producing. And so I think there's a lot of times we would book a big job and be like, look at how this thing is going to be awesome. We're going to make a ton of money. And then you get into it and we just lose our and have no dollars left, but you're really excited by the sale. Yeah. And then it just fizzles out. And that, you know, not knowing those fundamental pieces of our numbers, I think if I could go back and do it again, that would have been the piece that I would have wished we would have looked at sooner. Yeah. Quick question on that. Number before one. You, yeah, yeah. Before you think of another one, when you were working with a consultant and starting to solve that, you know, obviously there's the just charging enough, but then there's the operational efficiency. Which of those, if you had to say, was more important? Like just raising prices, does that like solve most of the other problems or was it pretty, no. pretty even? No. Okay. <laughs> no. I mean, you can chart. So here's kind of my, my take on it is tasks take the time allotted. So if you go in and charge more, or add more hours or whatever, if you don't focus on the operational efficiency, it doesn't matter. It's still going to take people's... No one wants to do a bad job. I don't think any one of our guys wanted to go in and, and take longer to produce a project than what we did. But the reality was is that no one was measuring it or paying attention to it. So left to their own devices, you know, I think that you can hide the problem by charging more because it's going to look better on your direct margin but it doesn't fix the efficiencies. And that's the long-term piece that has to get dialed in first to be successful. Yeah, love it. And that, unfortunately, that's the harder piece too. <laughs> yeah, but no, we're still- we're That's still just life, doing, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I have a production book sitting on my desk in the back corner, right? And we still check in on it, right? There's still process improvements that have to happen even at this level where because we're self-performing, the you know we can make a much higher margin on a project but also it can go the other way, right? And that's the risk. And, and so that's carried forward for us even today. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And now too, you guys have 83 employees, I think you said, or 88, I can't remember the exact mm -hmm. number, but that's a lot. And going from just nice. a couple couple of guys in college to, to that, I guess maybe just share some thoughts around like takeaways from growing a team, hiring, managing, like, is there anything in that bucket where maybe it took you a little too long to learn something, but then once it kind of fell into place, it made some things easier. It's never easy, yeah. I'll say, because like the people no. part of the business is just challenging. <laughs> but it's also it's also there's there's tons of reward, right? So totally. I think the yep. things that are the most difficult tend to have the biggest value on the back end. So agreed. It's funny because that was actually going to be the second thing that I was going to say was understanding who we were hiring and what we were hiring for. Mm. So luckily, Mike, my business partner, a couple of years ago, he's. He's much more the visionary in the business. I'm I'm much more the the integrator than he is. We do EOS, which is the the for our system. And so, you know, years ago he went out and he found some behavioral assessment softwares that allowed us to actually have people come in and take an assessment. And it's not an assessment on if they can do the job. There's no ability to sort of measure somebody's ability to do the work. But what it does tell you is it tells you who they are as a person. 
And you know if a role requires really high level of attention to details, or if a role requires somebody to be really gregarious and outgoing and talkative and, and create connections and relationships. You do know a little bit of like the type of person that fits well in roles. And so when we started using this behavioral assessment, what happened was, is we started to get the right people in the right seats from the get-go. We weren't taking somebody who was introverted that we liked. I mean, the reality is I'm pretty extroverted. So is my business partner. So we hired a whole bunch of extroverts. <laughs> and extroverts tend to not be as concerned about details. And so, you know, we're hiring extrovert accountants. And I mean, to be honest, it's probably not the best spot to have extroverts, right? You want the person who wants to sit at the computer, pay attention to details. It's not that I didn't like that. I loved the person, but they weren't in the right seat within the organization. And we made that mistake a lot without having data and information. So when we started some of those assessment tools, it just helps us to ensure like we'll sit down and interview with somebody and think we're interviewing for one role. We'll see their personality profile and who they are. And we pivot because it's like, wait a second, you know, you can do the job. You just have to put a face on to be somebody you're not. And I know that's not going to last in the long term. So let's not put you in that seat. We've got this other seat that based on who you are, is probably a better fit. And let's talk about what that looks like. And yeah. that's been fundamentally huge. And I think specifically in our construction business, and this is me, I don't know, I'm, and people, I think there's a lot of egos that come into some of the, it's easy to find egos in that space. And I think the reality is like, it's a tangible craft. Like it's a trade. Your value is measured on what you can create with your hands and, the, and, and what you're able to do and, and complete. And I think that what happens is, is I will take a less skilled carpenter who's got the right attitude than the best skilled carpenter who's got a chip on their shoulder. Because the culture piece with our team matters so much. And I've said it before, as I think right now in the trade space, almost everybody, if anybody has people that work for them, the reality is they could go get a job somewhere else making more. I promise. There's somebody hiring that is willing to pay them more than you're paying them right now today because there's such a shortage. And so the reality is, is if I can't compete and match the top dollar that they're going to be offered somewhere, then I have to create another enticing place to work. And that has to be through a cultural piece. They have to like the people they work with. They have to like the work that they do. And they have to enjoy the people that are leading them and managing them. And they're spending a lot of their time with. And so all of that piece has sort of been helped by our ability to get an understanding of who somebody is before we hire them on, even in the interview process. Hey guys, I know that if you listen to Builder Funnel Radio, you are hyper aware of the fact that the way people shop and buy, it's changed dramatically over the years. And for the last 10 years, really since I started doing all this, helping my uncle's remodeling division scale up from about 2 million to 10 million, We've been helping remodelers and builders and contractors all over the country really refine their marketing systems. And I recently decided to kind of bottle all of that up into my first book. And that book is called The Remodeler Marketing Blueprint. And you can pick up a copy by going to the website, remodelermarketingblueprint.com. You can also search for it on Amazon or wherever books are sold online. But I highly recommend you go over to the website because we've got some cool book bonuses that go along with that. If you 
pick up a few extra copies for your friends and colleagues or your teammates. So it would mean a lot to me if you've been listening to this podcast for a while or even just a few episodes, if you've ever gotten any value out of it, head over to remodelermarketingblueprint.com and snag your copy today. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, love that. Yeah, that's great advice. That was something that I, it took me a little bit to learn as well as just hire for culture and train for skill, kind of a, if you were to simplify it. And obviously you want to try to get both when you can and you right. know, bring somebody in with skill. But that kind of leads me into what I wanted to talk to you about next is a lot of people are talking right now about like they can't find the people, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say a huge swath of the people I talk to are probably somewhere between like five and 30 people on their team. Obviously some people, you know, like yourself have, have more, have you found like, I guess there's a number of questions I want to ask here. So I'm trying to think of how to line it up, but I guess yeah. you probably had to hire a lot of people in a year, right? Like in certain years, like as, the, as your growth went on, like you were probably hiring, you know, multiple, maybe multiple of the same position, probably multiple across different positions. I'm curious just how you went about like systematizing that. Cause you, when you hire at a velocity, we've gone through a couple of sprints at our company where you really are like, wow, we really got to think about this, like taking applications, like it's a whole, it's like a marketing and sales process, but for your team. So I'm curious how you guys kind of went about building that process. And then kind of part B to that is just in terms of the skill set, do you try to just train people up or do you go seek out the skill? Yeah, and there's a lot um, to unpack there, so I can there I can uh, refresh <laughs> the questions, but but I think no, it's no, really good, good to dive into because it's the stuff that we're all dealing with. Yeah, I think that when it comes to, so I've kind of had this mentality of like always be recruiting, always right. Even if we're not hiring, always be recruiting. There's a difference between hiring and recruiting, and recruiting is getting people interested that want to work with you and finding talent and and knowing where you can tap that when you need it. So I think that. There's always a mindset. Honestly, if I st- if I drive around our city, if anybody else is listening to this in Duluth, I'm sorry. I'll stop when I see a crew and I'll start a conversation with the people working on the job site. I give them my card. I let them know if they're ever looking to do something different to let me know. You know, I think in all the years that I've been doing it, I think I've hired a couple off of it, like two. And so like there's been some value. It is a lot of time, but at the same time, it's also been a great way to do it. I think that as far as like the process and the system that we set up. So we have leaned really heavily into our business planning. So I can tell you right now how many people I want to hire for next year, how many crews we want to have, what our average production needs to be per month and what our what our margin goal is every month for 2023 already. Because I'm, I'm sending incentives with my team. We're talking about how that works and what we want to see out of our construction team. So I think that for me, the, the big thing we come back to is I look at two things. I look at what do we have in backlog right now? How many hours do we have on the books? right? And, and what's a reasonable amount of time that a customer can wait? In our world, we tend to like, I like to be three to four months, anything more than that. And I think that what ends up happening is you end up with people disappointed in the process. Yeah. And so for us, if I look at our backlog, that helps determine, okay, just for today to hit the run rate that I need to produce what we've got in backlog in the next three to four months. And mind you, we're not there right now. We're nine months out. So we're on the wrong side. And then the other piece that I look at is, okay, what's the lead flow coming in? How many bids are outstanding? What do we have sitting in the pipe? You know, What's our confidence on what's coming in? Because we've never once, and knock on wood, we don't lay people off in the off season. I don't want to run a construction business that hires full people. You know, we, we double our size every summer and then let them go in the fall. I don't want to do that. That, that turnover and that revolving door is not a business model 
that I'm interested. We did that. It's not fun. And so for us, there is a bit of just planning out first, what are the numbers behind the scenes and the logistics of what we've got booked, how long we need to produce it, and then determining how many people we need. And from there, we can sort of then go back and say, okay, we need to hire this many carpenters, this many foremen, or we need to look at people who are really good at carpet and LVP because we do a lot of it, or we need some finished carpenters because the next seven projects we have we have 87 kitchens to put in because one of them's a multi, you know? And so there is a little bit of that. And then for us, we try to target all of our ads. So it's, it's a really intentional process and it takes a long time, but we write our ads for the, the personality of the person that we want, because I want the person to read the ad and be like, that's me. Holy cow. They're talking to me because when they read that, they're going to be more interested in applying and sitting down and talking with us versus just this blanket. Hey, we're hiring carpenters. Can you swing a hammer and do construction and cool, we'll hire. That's been one of our processes. And then our inner selection process is, you know, we do a phone call, we do a behavior assessment, we do a sit-down interview, one or two of them. And this is even for a basic carpenter. I am uninterested in hiring somebody on until I can meet that person face-to-face, have a conversation with them, shake their hand, know who they are. And I'm not interviewing them for their skill set at that point in time. I'm interviewing them for who they are as a person and are they going to fit on our team? Do they have the right attitude? Do they have the right personality? And do they have the work history that supports, you know, making a hire? And then we treat, we, the way we do employment is every 30 days for the first 90 days, we do a review with every employee. Because the idea is that first 90 days is just a continuation of the interview process. And I'm going to figure out in 30 days if they actually can do the things that they said they can do. Because in an interview, if you ask somebody like, are you a good carpenter? everybody's going to say yes. No, not really. (laughs) Right. And so a lot of it is I hire less for skill in the interview and I'm hiring more for who they are. And then I'll I'll put them out in the field working with some of our foremen or our project manager. And what we're really trying to determine is we're seeing where their skill set is, right? Where are the gaps? Where do they need more development? Where do they, what can they do comfortably by themselves and what can't they? And then we can have conversations about that over the first three months. And I'll be honest, not everybody makes it. It's not, I would, again, sort of goes back to this thing. I would rather have a longer backlog and the right people than a shorter backlog and the wrong people. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And so I would imagine that you bring on more people that are the right people, but you end up having to train them up in the skill sets that you need versus trying to go find the person that just comes with all all the skills. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, and I will ahead. say, though, we do, you know, you asked the question, do we hire for, you know, are we out looking for skill? Like where are we, you know, I think for the higher level roles, I think that where we, you know, I will say that high level foreman carpenter who can do just about anything under the sun, you know, they're, they're competent in just about everything. And if, even if they don't do it all the time. So our kind of rationale is we don't roof. Right. We don't go and do roofs. We hire vendors to do that because I know that my guys are very capable of doing it. I think they would hate it. And then they wouldn't be fast at it because we don't do it all the time. But them knowing start to finish how they could build a house makes so much of a difference because most of what we do. So our housing stock here in our city, the average house was built in like 1922. So it's all old. I mean, you get into the it's all laughing plaster. You know, we get into, I mean, everything is seriously hand-sawn lumber, hand-cut nails. Like it is, so you never know what you're getting into. And so having that depth of experience. So on those higher level roles, it seems like those are harder to hire. It takes us longer. It takes a lot more conversations. And those tend to come from 
somebody who interacted with us at one point and then saw an ad. That seems to be the bigger piece of, of how we we get those people on our team. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And I like how you described like writing the job ad. I mean, it's the parallels between like doing marketing and doing hiring are so similar. You know, it's like it, you want you want marketing. to attract the person. Yeah. Good point. It is marketing. I, it's I would sale. argue that it's, everything is, but <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Well, and it's a sale. And what happens with that sale though, right? Is so there's like, there's two pieces to the sale, right? You, you don't want to sell somebody into a job that they're not going to be good at, but it's also important to make sure you get them interested in what we're doing. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Well, Nick, I feel like we could probably like keep this going for another 30 minutes. We're running out of time. I do want to hit you up with a couple more questions before we wrap. First one, crazy client stories, wacky projects. There's got to be something in the last, you know, <laughs> 10, 15 years. Yeah. Come up. Anything coming to mind that you can share with us? You know, what ends up happening for us is when we get into renovation. So like there are times where we'll go in and we'll have a property that's pretty distressed. It doesn't happen as much in the homeowner space. Like that's pretty easy because most of the people that are hiring, granted, there's been a few odd things, but it seems like where we run into the most is we go into a property that's sort of been run down or hasn't been managed very well. And we get a lot of visitors. So a lot of people that will try to like break into a property or stay there, especially in the winter months up here, because it gets cold. Like we have a, we have an 18 unit that we just bid out. And one of the conditions of us before we can go in and do anything is the owner has to have the whole house treated for bed bugs because we don't want to send our guys in. There's some interesting things that we find in the vacant property space. Like it's less about maybe a really weird customer who's asking for a lot of things. And it's more just like, I don't know what to, there's people in here who don't live here and they're clearly moved in. Like, yeah. I don't know what to, you know, the guys don't know what to do. And that happens probably more than anything else is, you know, taking a property and turning it around. Sometimes you, you end up in some places that you would be surprised that people live or have lived or are actively living in. Yeah. And I think that's pretty common across the country. I know my uncles bumped into that a bunch up in the Seattle market too. And it's just, yeah, you just find some oddball situations that you got to work your way through. Luckily, there's some companies in town that do just trash out. So we call them and a lot of times they'll, they'll take everything out. So our team doesn't have to do it. They'll pull carpets, right? All of that. So by the time our, our team goes in, they're not having to, to deal with some of those things. Well, Nick, any like final words of wisdom or piece of advice that you'd want to leave for other people in the construction business, remodelers listening? You know, I think probably the biggest thing, and we, we touched on it already, and I guess I can't reiterate enough, is like know your numbers, right? I think that that's going to inform what you need to do for marketing. It's going to inform what you need to do for staffing. It's going to inform what you need to do for production and oversight. And I think I can't stress enough that if you don't feel comfortable with your numbers and and don't understand where they're coming from or how to affect them or their relationships between them, find resources. There's a lot of consulting organizations out there. There's communities you can get involved with. But I will say like fundamental to success is like, don't leave it to chance because the chances are if you're not measuring it, it's worse than you think. And the second you start to measure it, it gets better. Just by simply watching it, it will get better. And so leaning into that discomfort when And I know that that's not always, I mean, a lot of people come from, you know, having the tool belt on to then running their own shop and that transition to understanding your numbers and the metrics behind the scenes is scary. It's hard to know. And it's always scary to do things you don't know or understand and and learn them. But I will say fundamental to 
the ability to grow a business and, and have it sustainable and have it for the long term is knowing those those behind the scenes metrics is like it's gold for decision making. Yeah, great advice. Yeah, what gets measured gets improved. So yeah, well, yeah. well said. And Nick, I had a blast. Thanks so much for sharing your story yeah. with us today. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Remodeler Stories. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Every month we pick a winner and send out a free copy of my book, The Remodeler Marketing Blueprint. Just leave a review over on iTunes to enter to win. See you next time.